Once upon a time, a special coffee brand was born, Enchant Coffee. They believe that a good brew should be part of every good story. Enchant Coffee is a gourmet, fairy tale themed coffee company that offers flavors like Mad Tea Party, Potion of the Sea Witch, The Sleeping Curse, and The Enchanted Bean. Each is a unique blend of 100% Arabica coffee. Sign up for the newsletter at EnchantCoffee.com to receive 10% off your first order. EnchantCoffee.com. Add some magic to your morning. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. It's been a little while since we had the chance to do a crossover episode, so we're going to rectify that today. It's always fun to invite the hosts of other podcasts onto the Folklore Podcast. I've had the opportunity to guest on a couple of other shows myself recently too, mostly promoting my latest book, The Folklore of Wales Ghosts. There should be more of this sort of thing podcasting isn't a competition. Well, not for most people anyway. And it is a great chance to highlight the work of others. So, in today's episode, I'm delighted to chat with Martin Vaux and Eleanor Conlon, the creators and hosts of the Three Ravens podcast. Starting off originally as a podcast exploring the myth and folklore of the British Isles as a kind of travelogue, county by county, The show has recently grown and expanded to take in many other aspects of folklore and magic too. Each of the main episodes also includes a piece of storytelling related to the area being discussed, and we'll be able to enjoy some storytelling today too. So, who are my guests? Well, Eleanor is a folklorist, an actor, puppeteer, costume maker, theatre practitioner, and an award-winning writer, based in Sussex in England. She has an MA in Shakespeare and Early Modern Drama, and she trained at Shakespeare's Globe, where she conducted research into Renaissance magic and original practices costume. And she's got a BA in English from Goldsmiths College at the University of London. In addition to her work on the Three Ravens podcast, Eleanor has written and produced a number of plays for her theatre company Rust and Stardust, which are based in folklore. Martin is a storyteller, actor and an award-winning writer also based in Sussex. After completing his BA in English at the University of Exeter and working as an arts journalist for magazines and newspapers including the Oxford Times and the NME, he won the BBC Moo New Writers Prize in 2009 and he's written for film, TV, stage and radio, presenting and producing radio shows across southern and southwest England. After teaching full and part-time for over a decade, he was highly commended by the International Keats Shelley Essay Prize in 2021, and he's currently now studying for his MA in Romantic and Victorian Literature and Culture, also at Goldsmiths College at the University of London. So let's get into the interview. Eleanor and Martin, two of you but three ravens, welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Lovely to have you crossing over with us. Thank you very much for having us. We're very excited to be with you this evening. The idea of Three Ravens was always the two of us and the listener. So in this scenario, you're the third raven. I'll be you the are. third raven. 
That's fine. Yeah. I thought of you just the other day, in fact, because I was performing a show um, with a, a local folk singer to me, Jim Causley. We tour a show all about the songs of Dartmoor uh, and another show all about um, Devon folklore. Uh, and one of the songs that Jim does in this show actually is the Blackingstone Ravens, which is a Dartmoor version of the Three Ravens. So it brought you to mind while he was singing, which was lovely come across that version there are lots of different versions but that one is new to me so yeah. i have to look that up and twa corbys as well of course but yeah. you know they're great birds magical yeah. omen bringers so yeah absolutely I they really are uh i will send you a copy of the blackingstone ravens and you can have a little listen to uh to it and see how it compares anyway so let's let's introduce ourselves not me i've been here for eight years everybody knows who i am uh let, let's let's talk about you so uh eleanor and martin um tell us a little bit about yourselves your production company rust and stardust and um your podcast three ravens for those who haven't come across it yet so Three Ravens is a podcast where we're exploring the 39 historic counties of England. So not necessarily the same as today's modern counties. So these are the 39 historic boundaries of, of England. And each episode we tour around these counties and explore a bit of their history and folklore, including customs, superstitions, local legends and fun bits of curious fiction associated with the area. And then each week we retell a folk story from that area. And we do it in our style, which is, you know, slightly updated, slightly twisted um, and playful, which is in part inspired by Rust and Stardust Productions. Eleanor's Theatre Company, um, who've been a puppet theatre company since 2015, touring all over England. And we do all sorts of shows rooted in folklore. Um, so Eleanor started out, Rust and Stardust, really, with a show based on the Wild Man of Orford legend. And that was the first one. But there have been dozens and dozens and dozens of them mm -hmm. since. Um, and we keep writing new ones. And part of the reason that we established Three Ravens was... Putting on touring productions can be quite complicated. And there are so many great stories that we figured we were never going to tell them all unless we started doing it in a different way. So uh, the podcast is a way whereby we can get more people's ears um, involved in hearing some of these amazing stories. Without having to hire loads of actors. Yeah. Build loads of puppets every loads single puppets. time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and of course, it's... Um... It's moved on since season one to become even more than that, hasn't it? Because uh, I, I listened to and enjoyed thoroughly the first season as, as it came out. And then season two came along and all of a sudden it had lots of extra episodes doing other things as well as that that you've just described, didn't it? Yes, uh, we started adding a little bonus series in because, we well, we realised we had too much to talk about, yeah. basically. And I was getting particularly stuck in with kind of folk medicine and strange magical customs. And I thought, actually, there's enough here to form its own little mini series. So that's why we decided to bring in those four different thing, thing, aspects that we were interested in that we wanted to dig a little deeper into. And if people are anything like me when it comes to podcasts, if I find one I like, then I kind of just want more. And so we did sit down at the pub and, and think, well, OK, if we were going to offer like B-sides to the, the episodes that we were going to be recording, what themes would we pull out and put into little mini series that 
don't require us to write a, an entirely new story for every episode because that's labor intensive doing all the research and thinking and writing of a story and then the performing of a story um so if we were just to do the research bit and think about well what are the interesting things that fall outside of the 39 counties template and so eleanor talks about traditional crafts that are dying out um, and, and folk medicines and, and magic, as, as she's mentioned. And then I talk about strange creatures and cryptids, so bestiary episodes. And then I also do a kind of true crime episode once a month called Something Wicked, which is rooted in a historical awful crime that's taken place um, and discuss the kind of weird folkloric side of some of these historical murders. Now, as you say, at the end of each of the main episodes, you uh, do tell a story relating to the county or, or part of that county's area that you've discussed during the podcast. Um, I, I very much enjoyed your rendition of the hairy hands uh, for the Devon uh, for the Devon episode, uh, being only what forty-five minutes away from Dartmoor uh, and, and just over an hour or so away. Uh, from the B3212 and the position of said hairy hands that uh, felt very at home, that particular one. Have you ever encountered a hairy hand, Mark? Um, I've encountered plenty, but I wouldn't say that they were uh, paranormal ones necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> yes, fairly hairy, hairy knuckled people from the southwest. I say this as someone from the southwest. And, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I know that you are very rooted in Devon yourself, so I will let you get away with that particular comment. <laughs> Uh, I shall look forward to your um, second lap around the country to hear some more Devon, because as you rightly said, we've got all of the folklore here and you only had a few of the minutes in which to cram it all in. Now, um, we are going to hear a story in just a moment. We're going to hear a story um, performed by Eleanor in this particular case, a very traditional story. Um, Child Ballad number 10, if we want to get all technical about it. Um or number seven on the round index, if we want to get more technical about it, I think. Um, tell us tell us what we're going to listen to. So I've retold uh, the, the two sisters or the cruel sister, as it's sometimes known, especially in song renditions. Uh, it's a tale of jealousy between siblings who both fall in love with the same fellow and it goes horribly wrong. <laughs> Let's listen now to just how horribly wrong it really does go. A long time ago, long ago, so long ago that no tree can remember and no rock can remember and the sea itself does not remember, there lived two sisters. They lived in a dark and lonely tower at the edge of the North Sea and its black stones were lashed by the wind and rain and the every mood of the sea. The days were short and the nights were very long. But the sisters lived safely wrapped in each other's love. Like the moon, the elder sister was pale, and her black hair surrounded her beauty like the midnight sky, while the younger sister was bright as the sun, her golden hair shining, dazzling as the gilded clouds. Their mother was long dead, and their father was a fighting lord who had lost interest in his daughters as they grew, and he spent many long moons away on campaign swinging his axe in great battles and writing his own legend in the ballads of time. And so the sisters spent their days very much alone, their bodies embraced only by the wild wind, 
and their lips kissed only by the sea's salt spray. That was until a brave knight came riding to the lonely tower, his chestnut curls dancing with the wind rather than against it, and he laughed with the sisters and brought them amber weights for their loom and dragon bone combs for their hair. Each night of his stay, they feasted on the finest foods the sisters' lands could yield. They sucked the salty taste of oysters from their crusty shells and drank the ruby seeds of pomegranates and warm golden nectar from long horns of mead. The knight looked at the women's white fingers as they pressed into the flesh of the fruit, and he looked at their mouths as they ate and drank, and he wanted. But the sisters were looking at the knight as well, and a seed was growing in their hearts, a ripe, fat seed which blossomed into a want just as great as his own. One day, the younger sister with the golden hair went out into the harsh lands around their tower to gather raspberries. The knight followed after her, watching where she went. The wine-red flush of the berries was bright against the black tangle of thorns, and when she sat down on the heath to fill her basket with berries, he sat down beside her. Beneath the boughs of the black ash tree, lie down on the ground with me. She did lie down, and he lay down with her, in a tumble of raspberries and easily forgotten promises. And when she came back to the tower, her elder sister knew what had happened, for the story was there to be read in the look on her face and the three drops of raspberry juice staining her milk-white dress. But the elder sister smiled and poured the mead and was so kind and so sweet that the younger sister had no idea that anything was wrong, and she was so giddy with happiness that she drank too much and slept the whole next day away while the elder sister drunk nothing at all. And the next day she dressed herself and went out to gather raspberries in her sister's stead. Just as before, the knight followed after her. Beneath the boughs of the black ash tree lie down on the ground with me. She did lie down and he lay down with her, but because her dress was red, it didn't show the stain of the raspberries and the elder sister got back to the castle without anybody knowing what she had done. But still the knight made no choice between the sisters, and still he stayed on, eating and drinking and enjoying himself in the raspberry patch whenever he could, and the green flowers of jealousy opened their buds in the heart of the elder sister until every part of her was as twisted as a thicket of briars. And so she told her sister that she knew what she'd done with the knight, and when the younger sister cried and said that it was true, the elder sister suggested that they go down to the salt sea together and wash themselves clean with its waters, and everything would be as it had been before. So the next afternoon, as the light was beginning to fade from the sky, the two sisters went down to the deserted sea strand, while the knight was still out hunting the does in the forest. They took off their dresses and washed themselves in the freezing bite of the salt water, and then they laid down by the shore together at low tide and watched the last dying rays of the sun paint the waves scarlet, 
The elder sister took her sister by the hand and sang a soft, sweet lullaby to her. The sound of the sea and her sister's voice sent the younger sister to sleep in no time. And while she slept, the elder sister took the ends of her golden hair and knotted it into the seaweed on the rocks so she was held fast. And then she left her in the time it took the sun to vanish and plunge the shore into blackness. When the younger sister woke it was night and the tide was coming in, the wet, relentless slap of the waves against the rocks sounding out like a death knell. She screamed for her sister and tore and struggled, trying to untie her hair or rip it from her scalp but she couldn't get free. And she thought of her sister sitting in the tower surrounded by bright candles and glistening meat and fruit, and the gaze of the night sliding towards her as they shared their secrets. And the tide came in, and in, and in, and the wind and the rain lashed all around, and the storm stole away her dying cries, and she was drowned. Three days passed by in that time long ago, so long ago that no tree can remember and no rock can remember and the sea itself does not remember when one sister drowned another in the name of desire. A musician walked along the North Sea shore without the lightness of the songs which had been his fortune. He dragged his feet and kicked the stones and sea glass for his luck had changed and his purse was as empty as his store of hope. He was all alone in the world, a wanderer who had found neither love nor satisfaction. The only life he'd ever known was music and it seemed to him as though that too had forsaken him. As he walked by the sea, he saw a white shape lying on the rocks before him. At first he thought it was a swan, dead in flight, with its white wings spread out and shimmering in the sun's weak light. But as he drew closer, he saw that it was the body of a woman, with her pale golden hair spread out all around her like a pair of wings. He ran towards her and tried to see if there was any life left in her, but her eyes were closed and her fingers blue. He, he breathed into her mouth, but it was as cold as death, as cold as a stone on the shore. His first thought was to run, run far away, for he feared being accused of her death if anyone came. But he felt a great pity in his heart for her, for she was so young and so beautiful, and so he sat beside her a while. As he sat, he saw that her hair had been twisted and knotted into the wet, dark seaweed that was growing in the rocks. He started to try to untie it, but as soon as he touched her hair, he thought he heard a voice speaking to him. To sing the truth of murder sharp, string my hair into a harp. Well, the musician was horrified and drew his hands away, but the voice persisted, louder and more desperate than before. To sing the truth of murder sharp, string my hair into a harp. 
It went on and on and on until the musician was filled with the conviction that he had to do as the dead woman said. So he took his dagger and he sliced her hair free of the rocks and wound its long golden strands into strings for a harp. And that harp was the rarest ever known, for he slipped down her breast and prized her white bones free and carved from them an instrument which shone with the pale light that only a murdered bone can. Then he carried the harp, wrapped up in his cloak to the lonely tower as night was falling. The path to the tower was garlanded with ropes of sea heather and lanterns flickering in the fierce wind, and the tower itself was a beacon in the wild night, filled with tall candles and lords and ladies dressed in rich colours. For it was the marriage feast of the knight and the elder sister, who had lost no time in claiming her prize, telling the knight that her younger sister had run off with another lover. The knight was far from disappointed. The two sisters had been a sweet prize for him, but one would do just as well. The musician was admitted to the feasting hall. Others were there to sing and dance, but when he pulled his cloak aside to show them the harp, they stepped back and gave him place, for they knew that it was a strange and wonderful thing. As the musician came forward with the harp in his arms, the feast fell silent. The smiles withered on the lips of the black-haired bride and her new husband as the firelight played on the clean white bones and the sparkling golden strings. But as the musician laid the harp down, the strings moved of their own accord and the harp began to play alone without the touch of any human hand. Gasps of awe soon turned to terror as an eerie voice sang out, seeming to come straight from the harp. The bride sat in mute horror as the harp sang. Even the moon was breathless where she hung in the sky, waiting for what would come next. Until the harp spoke, and it spoke with the voice of the murdered younger sister, who told them all what her elder sister had done, every last detail. Then the voice sang on, endlessly, mercilessly, the notes of the lullaby which had been the last sound heard by the younger sister until the bride's throat was hoarse from screaming in terror. And all the fine lords and ladies fled, and the knight fled too, and they bolted the doors and nailed them shut with long lead nails as the harp sang on and on, and they rode away from that deserted tower on the North Sea shore, leaving the two sisters together. So, why choose that particular story? Well, actually, when I was growing up, my mum and I always used to listen to Pentangle in the car 
that sort of very 70s folk folky sound and they had a recording of I think it's called Cruel Sister in their version and I was very struck even as a young person by this tale with the two sisters very opposite in looks and indeed personality and one who goes to these extreme lengths and murders the other one and then the absolutely gruesome visceral part where the musicians turn her body into an instrument it's so revolting but it's <laughs> it's really striking so I think I've had this story with me for a very long time so it was about time it, it bubbled out of me <laughs> to be fair you are still a young person let's 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 be honest much younger person though <laughs> I'm, t- I'm talking sort of six yeah <laughs> <laughs> it was also a fun opportunity for us to do something where we both got to take part in the reading of the story because if mm. a listener of the folklore podcast hasn't heard three ravens we take turns to do these counties and it's a solo endeavor each time so we each read and perform the stories and in this one Eleanor threw to me and I was able to throw back and it was nice to be able to use both of our voices which is something we do on stage all the time but, but, but not on the podcast. podcast so and as storytellers is that is that a preferred way of working do you think rather than an individual oral telling because also the, the, well, going back in to the mists of time in folklore you know the the, the individual oral telling of a story by a traveling storyteller or or a, a member of a community would have been the way that these tales were delivered and and migrated so do you find that it's um more challenging working with two voices or or do you prefer to work that way I think because our background's theatre, it's very normal for us to have that dialogue and communication and to be able to respond to somebody else's rhythm in a live performance. It's, it's very much where we come from, actually. You know, doing a solo performance for us is is more unusual. Um, so I guess we've got a slightly unique perspective on that. I think it's interesting for the two of us because we're both literature bods basically (laughs) and so Eleanor's specialist area she did her masters in Shakespeare um, particularly Shakespeare and magic Um, and uh, I'm a romanticism bod and out of romanticism come these great dramatic monologues so you know you have things like the rhyme of the ancient mariner which isn't Mm. technically a monologue but it's it's mostly performed by one person normally and this idea of the visionary poet this this person who stands and performs but then you move into this period of say robert browning and his sort of mad uh narrators who are are telling these stories like porphyria's lover or something like that and i think one of the fun things about doing solo tales is that idea that the audience doesn't know what's going to happen to the storyteller how what what role they're going to play when when they take it on um and we do play with that also when we're doing kind of ensemble company work Mm -hmm. where we sometimes multi-role and play several different parts but i guess it's trying to figure out what's the right means to tell a story for the audience you're in front of and do you integrate folklore into a lot of your theatre work? Do you find that, that 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 it works in that way with most of what you do? Yeah, it really does. I mean, the use of the sort of the character archetypes and the tale tropes definitely comes across in my work a lot. I, I I've done a lot of Brechtian inspired work in my life, which does sort of feature the narrator character, the storyteller, the actor stepping out of role and communicating directly with the audience in the way that an oral storyteller does. So I think it's just, it's kind of the bedrock, you know, even if we're 
doing Shakespeare, we've still got that idea of traditional story underneath it all. We're also both really interested in kind of psychoanalytical approaches to analysis. And when we think about without getting too wonky about it, uh, mythocriticism and, you know, Jungian archetypes. One of the great and most interesting things about folklore is when you look at even a story like the one we just told, it recurs across loads of different cultures all over the world. And sure, people have been sailing around and telling stories in pubs and all that time, but there must be some reason why some of these archetypes, some of these ideas, some of these symbols resonate in such a way that they endure so profoundly and are carried and mutate and change uh, and perhaps get stuck to places or individuals in history in peculiar ways. And, and we're really interested in, in Three Ravens, as well as in our other work, kind of digging away at that and going, well, why this place and why now? I'm glad you mentioned that point, actually, um, because I have asked one or two people recently about the uh, Jungian psychological approach in, in terms of um, folk memory and, and the subconscious, collective consciousness, whatever, however you want to term it. Because I think it's very important in folklore, and anybody who's read my book on black dog folklore will, will know that it, it sits very much behind that, because we have this thousand-odd years of, of reports of black dog sightings, which even people in modern times who have no prior of any of this kind of thing will use the same descriptors, will use the same important themes. And, and of course, the dog is very important to us as, as a species because it's one of the earliest domesticated creatures, you know, was was important for so, so many different reasons, which I don't need to go into now. But psychologists now are very quick to kind of dismiss the Jungian approach and say, you know, actually, that's a load of twaddle. I don't think that's that's really relevant at all. Folklorists, I think, are not quite so quick to dismiss it for very obvious reasons. So you side with the folklorists, right? Absolutely. I mean, if I read about somebody taking a journey under or through water, I immediately think of the Jungian subconscious. You know, I, I just think it's the perfect connection. We were just talking about water being a gateway, weren't we, earlier? Yeah, that, that you know, idea of early faiths and the, and the evidence we have of the disposal of sacred objects, whether it be crowns or other religious icons or swords and daggers. You know, when someone passes away, say at Flag Fen being a really good example, swords are bent, destroyed in this world, thrown into the water where as they sink beneath the surface they move into that other world that other place where they become useful to their owner in the afterlife those kinds of things are deeply embedded i think into the human character not just into stories and and stories are how we pass on our culture after all it's how we learn anything at all i profoundly believe that to be the case yeah, you were talking about the black dog. And of course, now we, we sort of, I think there's a tendency in, in modern culture to understand the black dog as an allegory for, say, depression or a spectre that looms over us. But actually, the figure of the dog is really prevalent in loads of stories and accounts, as you say. It's not just this psychological stand-in. It is an actual dog. One of Eleanor's plays is Black Shuck. It's one of the ones that we, yeah. we've put on several I'm times. I'm a big fan. <laughs> yeah, so we're very, very interested in Shuck legends. And of course, they recur all up and down England. Beast stories yeah. and, and dog stories are kind of everywhere you look. Um, but I also think from the theory perspective, there was a point in time where you had 
people like Lyotard and the postmodern movement who are looking to kind of smash away at previous understandings that we might call humanist understandings and to move us into this phase of existence we kind of roughly call post-humanism. And I think when we think about post-humanism and post-humanist theory, as much as it's super trendy, and uh, perhaps defines a lot of our discourse these days. Um, that idea of trying to pass on the best knowledge for humanity, however you define humanity, that's where it gets complicated, of course. Um, but nonetheless, that idea, that humanist goal is still one that I think is noble. It, it may have gone wrong several times, but in my heart, I do think we should try and do the best things that we can for one another. And I think that telling stories that have a kind of moral underpinning underneath them that, that allow us to learn more about ourselves and kind of hold a mirror up to society and provide some kind of mimetic um, you know, kind of quality or feature. I think that's really important. Um, it's even better for me if the mirror is cracked and the audience knows you're not really telling the truth per se, you're telling a truth. And, mm. and because it's a little bit distorted, then you actually perhaps can read more and understand more because it's not ever really intended to be fully literal. And because the oral tradition is so linked to memory and the idea of this tale being passed down through generations, or actually I heard this from a bird who heard it from a king who gave me a ring and I told the story, you know, it's um, the idea of memory being the ultimate unreliable narrator. Yeah. So it will always get slightly skewed in the telling. Like you could retell the sister's story now and your version would be completely different. Even if I said to you, Mark, retell what I've just told, it wouldn't be the same because your memory would be slightly wobbly around the edges. And then you'd also want to bring your own experiences into it and make it yours. And that's one of the things we love so much about these stories they're not that they they're universal because they don't try to be yes that's true and yeah thus can work yeah absolutely and i was talking about some of these themes actually um earlier in the week i i, I recorded an interview earlier in the week which would have gone out by the time this one goes out actually with um icy sedgwick about her new book rebel folklore and and um some of the characters that she talks about in that um and, and we have a discussion about water courses and things like that actually as part of that as well um just with you touching on water earlier on but but yes the idea of a, a lot of these stories are moralistic but then a lot of them are also cautionary of course and that ties in with the whole water thing as well isn't it uh, half of the folklore connected to water if it isn't some kind of psychopompic or, or or other similar transitory experience in water it is essentially right here's a story that's going to stop people falling into this deep thing or something like that. And cautionary tales are so important too. Absolutely. And, and we were actually talking earlier about mermaids. So mm. I don't know when this will go out, but there, there will be towards the end of series two of, of Three Ravens, there's, there's a mermaid story. And mermaids are really, really interesting not just for their otherness, of course, which is a fine quality of many different what people call cryptids these days, but, you know, creatures uh, from folklore, um, but also that basic concept of there is danger in the sea, there is danger in the lake. It's kind of... And it may be alluring to yeah. go in the lake because it's singing a beautiful song Definitely. and has lovely hair, but yeah. uh, it's dangerous. Yeah, exactly that. It's, uh, and these themes run through all different types of folklore, don't they? So, and obviously, one of the themes that runs through your particular story that you told earlier on is, is the the story of the the wicked person versus versus the lovely friendly sibling, or whatever kind of makeup that takes. Why do you think we see so many 
fairy tales, folk tales, folk songs that focus on this dynamic of of the wicked sister or the wicked stepmother or the the wicked other person. It's curious because it. I mean, it's sort of saying, "Don't be like her. She's a rat bag." But then, on the other hand, it's not great to be like the fair sister because she dies and is turned into a harp. So it's a it's an interesting one. I mean. I guess a cautionary tale for the knight. Perhaps he should have been a little bit more circumspect when he was choosing which sister. It doesn't seem like he had a terrible time, though. I think this (laughs) this is is an area that I'm deeply interested in when it comes to villainy and particularly anti-heroes. So one of my big literary obsessions is Lord Byron. And out of Lord Byron, we get this icon of the Byronic hero um, who is, you know, a version of a rakish archetype that goes back through history and time. You know, not long ago, you were talking about on the folklore podcast, the trickster archetype and how this character appears over and over again. We expect to hear the next installment of the adventures of that version of that archetype over and over again. And in a way, we don't want a comeuppance for the villain very often. Mm. When it does happen in literature, um, often it's to provide a kind of cathartic release to make us feel better. A lot of Victorian fiction really thrives on this idea of the baddies getting punished or, or kind of evil being uncovered. You know, the detective novel, the most popular literary genre of our moment in time, ever since it was invented with the advent of the detective, really, um, has all been about uncovering the crime. Um, but we don't really believe that that's how life works. We might find it comforting, you know, in the same way that any cathartic conclusion can be, but we don't think it's real. Uh, It's just part of the formation of the story and and a good way to end it. I think part of those um, those two sister tales, it makes a lot of the fact that one is dark and one is light. Um, Take that how you will. But I mean, I quite like the idea of the the two sides of the same coin, really, you know, our, our world is light and dark, you know, we have we have light day and dark night and the sisters are actually much more similar than they might think. That's why I wanted to include them kind of both going down to the raspberry bushes with the night. So the good the good sister is she's she's not so much better. You know, she's just it's sort of the way the, the bad sister has decided to make things work out. She's just grasped the opportunity. And ultimately, they're left alone together that trapped in this tower, complementing each other or destroying each other for the rest of eternity. I think also the femininity of that story is one of the most interesting things, because when we talk about wicked sisters, wicked witches, we talk about uh, Eve in the Garden of Eat and yeah. that idea of the fallen female or the corrupting female. And, you know, through Blake and many, many other writers, the idea of innocence and experience, the idea of mm-hmm. corruption, the idea of primarily sex being a corrupting influence on on mankind, which is a really curious stick with which I think society has been beaten for so, so long. We are scared of female sexuality. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, justifiably so. Ah, Helena, no! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I I, um, 
was at the International Society for Contemporary Legend Research Conference uh, not not too long ago. Um, uh, and one of the presentations at that, and it's somebody who I interviewed and, and we'll have a little kind of bonus episode about soon. Um, she was talking in her presentation about, about the, those kinds of depictions within the horror genre uh, and, and things like the film Teeth, of course, which which is all about, if you know the the story, you know, um, a, a female character who, whose teeth are not in the place necessarily where you would normally expect teeth to be. And it's this whole... It's this whole story, isn't it, about that, about the the, the fear of of the feminized character, you know, a sort of a attack in that way. However, you want to to broach it, it's fascinating. Um, There's an unfortunate element to the whole being turned into a harp thing, which is in a way suggesting that she can only really be absolved if she's kind of completely destroyed and remade into something by a male figure yes um, which is a slightly uncomfortable aspect of the story that objectification legitimizes her yeah it's mm. a really curious and uncomfortable aspect of that story and, and it's part of the charm of the tale you couldn't have it be there yeah you couldn't tell the story any other way really it has to be a key <laughs> feature but, but nonetheless i think that's why it's a horror story and not just a story and i wonder if that theme is common in very many other stories. I'm trying to think of other examples. That that idea. I mean, yes, the 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 whole um, you know male female divide, the patriarchy being being what it was and indeed still is in many respects in these stories and the way that's represented. But that's an interesting point, isn't it? The the objectification working in that way. I wonder if that comes up anywhere else as well. There are versions of the singing bone, I think, where it it pops up. Um, and yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm sure there absolutely are well, that, people that, being turned into trees who, uh, who then bleed or talk. Yeah, or definitely. That, that's very common. But also the idea that a, a, a woman's essence is represented in a symbol. Mm -hmm. So something like uh, Cinderella's shoe, whether it's a fur shoe or a glass shoe or, or a crystal slipper or whatever it might be, or the woman, woman as cauldron metaphor, yeah. you know, all of those kinds of objects that are stand-ins for femininity um, and I, the idea of holding life and holding something that is enriching and nourishing like a child or, or you know, that kind of concept. I think that very often we, we read those symbols in our fairy tales and perhaps just brush by them. And we, we think to ourselves, well, why do witches have an externalised cauldron that's such a, an important feature? Because their vessel is terrifying. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Now, the, the, you find obviously different versions within the UK of that story, um, but of course you find different versions um, internationally as well that all have similar themes. So, so like the Polish example still has the the raspberries in it as you know there's a raspberry gathering contest uh, there's a version in hungary which um has three daughters as a king with three daughters rather than um there being two sisters so so you find these different kind of elements that come in although the underlying story is still the same and do you find that generally within your work with with the storytelling aspect of what you do that that you have this ability to be able to pick and choose different features from different cultures that serve a purpose in the story that you then want to tell ultimately. Absolutely. This one was a little bit different because it did have, because normally on Three Ravens, we tend to go for very English stories. 
in uh, rooted in place. But for this one, I did. I had the luxury of being able to choose from other things. And I'm glad you mentioned the raspberry bushes because I was going to mention the the seaweed. So she tangles her sister's hair into the seaweed, and that's a detail from a version of the tale that's told in the Orkney Islands. Mm. Um, because obviously the terrain there, there lots of seaweed, lots of sea, very wild and rugged cliffs. And I really loved that detail. I was just very struck by it. It really captured my imagination. And yeah, absolutely. You can totally pick and choose elements. But I think when we're doing the Three Ravens tales, it's for me, it's a lot about making connections. So you'll see a, a little bit of interesting history from a place, memorial plaque in a church or a gravestone or something. And then you'll hear this folk legend and, and it's not been connected. And you think, oh, actually, maybe that could that could be brought together in some interesting way and put a new spin on the way that person died or something like that. So recently, as an example of this, we visited Rye, lovely town in uh, Sussex, um, historical medieval walls gorgeous very haunted and then we went on a ghost tour in right gotta be done <laughs> and the and the importance of the ghosts that haunt rye are related to a series of significant murders or historical traumas that affected that town and very often when you're researching or we're researching to do Three Ravens, we find a similar thing where a traumatic incident from a local area has led to the creation of some kind of legend, whether that's a grand explosion or a murder or a death or a fire or something like that. There's always something for us to, to, to get our little fingers into and wiggle around and go, okay, well, if we take the idea of this story that's been rolling around, can we then draw this out and connect it to that person or to this moment in time and yeah. perhaps slightly twist it to serve our purposes to bring history to life, as well as doing some of that discussion and playing with morality um, and perhaps some ideas of like symbolic norms and perhaps from time to time trying to upend them. <laughs> the other thing that you cover on your podcast, moving away slightly from the storytelling aspect now, are um, traditions and customs and superstitions of, of all of these counties. Now, we know, because we work with folklore a lot, um, and we're sensible, rational people. We know that folklore isn't just about that old stuff that some people think it is. You know, people think folklore is no longer relevant, that it's just about all of the, um, these old superstitions and traditions and, and, um, beliefs that the uneducated rural classes had in, in their, you know, uh, little villages in the middle of nowhere. Um, and we know that that's absolute rubbish. Um, do you find that when you're um, researching or collecting or working with any of these sorts of things, that more often than not, you think, do you know what, actually, that is still relevant, because although people do things differently now, um, you know, they're still interacting with this stuff. They still follow a lot of these beliefs. They just either don't like to admit it or more likely they don't actually realise that they are. Yeah, it's surprising. Well, I mean, in terms of the actual customs, we have come across an awful amount that are still absolutely just going on. Yeah. So we just uh, look up, go, this is the traditional day of the Abbots Bromley Horn Dance. Oh, and they're doing it now. It's mm -hmm. happening. Um, but also, I think a lot of these things are about a sense of community and belonging 
as humans, we're always looking for connections with other humans. And we want to find our tribe, we want to find people who are like us. And I think engaging in some of these activities in a group with other people, sharing the energy of the moment to sound very, very witchy woo for a moment. But I think it, it really, it fosters something in people. And if we lose that, we lose those connections. I think there's no coincidence that there has been such a resurgence of interest in folklore uh, at the same time as man taught stones to speak and we ended up with the computer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very interesting that you get people calling themselves scientists and saying, well, I believe in science and things like that, when we in the past would have framed a scientist as an alchemist or a natural philosopher, and modern-day scientists want to distance themselves from natural philosophers in the same way that natural philosophers wanted to distance themselves from the alchemists. And over time, the nomenclature will change, but the humanity of it all, linking it all back to that kind of rather grand humanist point I was trying to make, is very similar. And as much as it might be argued by some people in our culture that we don't need each other, that we can just come home and watch streaming services of an evening and have uh, what I would call quite general entertainment served up to us uh, on screens and we rarely see our friends, rarely see our family and perhaps don't communicate with them as as much as humans always would have in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, If we start to reconnect with one another, get our fingers dirty into the earth, smell the wood smoke, sing together, make music together and listen to a story told by somebody who can gauge the tenor of the room, and see the faces of the person that they're telling that story to, something magical happens that no algorithm will ever be able to replicate. Uh, And and I think that's really, to me, what's special about folk culture that nothing else can offer. People turn to folklore and stories in times of crisis as well, in times where it feels like maybe the world is moving too fast. And I think now is definitely that time. We're all worried about climate. We're all worried about the state of politics, especially in the UK. Um, and we want something that we can feel connected to that's a bit of a refuge from all of that. I think it's no, it's it's a, not a coincidence that the Victorian folk revival happens when the Industrial Revolution is happening and people are starting to get a bit freaked out by all these new machines, which they don't really understand and are are threatening livelihoods. And so the folk revival happens. You get very excited in accessing the old ways, if you like, um, which may or may not have existed in quite the form they were revived in. (laughs) Yeah, but that's a whole other area of study, isn't it? And, you know, with AI, we're always looking for allegory. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is a handy one. People talk about Frankenstein's food or Frankenstein foods. They use it for an allegory for the atomic bomb. And now we use it for AI. But that's really a folkloric story linked in Samuel Taylor Coleridge and, and going back to, to before, um, where people are still talking about the golem and concepts of Prometheus making man out of clay. You know, these are really fundamental. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, As we record this next week, my uh, online folklore courses for students on um, British folklore uh, begin. And one of the things that that some of my students will come up to very early on is this whole kind of industrial revolution and emergence of of interest in folklore things. So, So, yeah, you are absolutely right. 
Why do you think there is this resurgence now? Do you think it is purely because of the state of the world, or do you think there's more to it than that? I'm just thinking back to what we discussed earlier about the the Jungian archetypes and, and these kinds of folk memories. You know, is it this sense of identity? Um, is it a need for a shared experience? Do you think it's a combination of factors? If we were meant to come home and and just sit down and watch streaming services on our own, Netflix wouldn't have introduced the watch party, let's be honest. You know, the the, the like, group dynamic is still encouraged, even in that. Um, do you think at the end of the day that... Um, it's the shared experience and the and the the sense of identity approach is is the the one that levels all others. There are so many people you might be now, aren't there? Like people's identity and the sense of where it should go, and we're almost encouraged to manipulate our identity. I think, especially if you're online a lot, engaging with social media. There are directions you could go in. And I think it could probably feel quite overwhelming, um, say, if you're a young person trying to make your way in the world. And perhaps there's a sense that they want something that's a little bit more clear cut, perhaps something that's a bit older, something that's easier to understand because it's more of an archetype. I would also say, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would also say that we all have to acknowledge at a certain point that we have limits to our understanding. We, we cannot comprehend the true nature of the universe. And therefore, we understand things through metaphor. And at a certain point, you have to put faith in things. And a lot of people who believe in science and put science first haven't run the experiments that they believe in, but they're trusting somebody else. And that person is wearing a white frock. They're not calling themselves a priest. They're calling themselves a scientist, but you're still putting your faith in that person as a, a trustworthy authority where you're saying, OK, you're, you're the person who's done this. You're the person who knows. So I'll believe you and I will not worry about that in the back of my mind because I don't have time to figure it all out. And that's normal and human and has always existed. So there's always going to be in every society a certain amount of trust, faith, that's given to those people who can tell the most believable story and give you the most handy and relatable set of metaphors where you can go, yep, that seems to make sense to me. Even if in 150 years, 300 years, however long it takes, 50 years, sometimes even less, that's all proved to be not technically true. At the time it was the best we had. And a lot of human life is about that. And I think that we're now in a time where we're going, well, is this the best we've had? Are, are things as good now as they have ever been? Well, why don't we look back for some previous templates, look at some lessons from the past and things that may have gone wrong through our stories and, and festivals and so on and so forth. But also, why don't we adopt some habits from the past when perhaps those authorities maybe did have a better balance with what it means to be a healthy, happy human being. Do you think that um, people interact with folklore still all the time, um, not necessarily always because they don't realise that they're doing it, but do you think that sometimes there's an aspect, particularly with superstitions and things like that, that people don't walk under ladders or they salute magpies or they do all of these things just because that idea is so embedded that they don't want to tempt fate at the end of the day? 
Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say about magpies and ladders, and you don't even really think about it, do you? We all say bless you when somebody sneezes, even if we're not religious at all. We still are worried that your soul might fly down your nose. So we say bless you so it doesn't happen. Um, and it's so we don't even think about it. Um, it's so ingrained. And I think that's um, an example of the, the oral passing down. We've seen our parents do it. They've seen their parents do it and so on and so forth. And we right the way back in the 1400s and people saying, God bless you when somebody sneezes. When we talk about ideas of the collective unconscious, though, part of that can be linked to good and bad ideas, things that are dangerous and not, and that, that are universals. And so being polite to somebody if they're not well or not walking under a ladder is a is a classic and easy one good idea because if the ladder falls it will squishy yeah or yeah. someone drops something off it you know all of those <laughs> kinds of things that they're kind of obvious in a way and good advice that we pass down to children and i think that obviously a lot of fairy tales and folklore serve the purpose of teaching children in symbolic ways quite adult and complex ideas for later mm. um, and uh, they may not necessarily make the connection but they'll hopefully learn the lesson uh, that's kind of embedded deep in in those symbols and those metaphors i like the sneezing one i think at the end of a hard day's work the last thing you need is your soul flying down out of your nose and disappearing out the window it's gonna spoil your weekend by a devil <laughs> also as someone who works in podcast mark I'm, I'm sure that you could create a super cut of all of those times where a sneeze has surprised you during a recording and you've had to figure out how you're going to edit around it <laughs> yes and many other things too <laughs> um thank you both so much for taking the time to come on and talk about these themes they're really important and, and, and your work is really important because it, it's highlighting these uh, very traditional parts of folklore and storytelling um embedding them in the modern world and and ensuring that they still have these re this relevance so i really would urge everybody if they don't already listen to your podcast which they should let's face it to go off and do so uh, and i know your growth has been very very good recently so i know that lots of people are doing this and where else would you like people to go and look at things that you were doing well the rust and stardust website if you google rust and stardust or rust and stardust productions then that's easy to find and you can find our theatrical work there yes so that's everything else we're getting up to aside from three ravens so theater education projects weird and wonderful things that yeah. we are doing uh, but in terms of three ravens it's three ravenspodcast.com and that's got links out to everything we're doing online i think i will put links to all of the places on the uh podcast episode page for this episode on the folklore podcast website as normal so everybody can go and find you there uh Eleanor and martin thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk today thank, thank you mark thanks it's for a having real, us. real pleasure thanks if you don't already, do have a listen to the Three Ravens podcast and subscribe if you enjoy it. There's plenty on the catalogue to catch up on. It's not long now until we launch our new podcast, Stories from the Hearth, reading you old, obscure and traditional stories in a book at bedtime style. More announcements very soon, and the show will start posting weekly episodes from December. Subscribe to our mailing list on the Folklore Podcast website for more news, or keep an eye on the website for a new section coming soon. If you'd like to try your hand, or your voice, at reading a story for one of the episodes, then please email us, folklorepodreaders at gmail.com, 
for more information on that project. I'll be back soon with another episode of the Folklore Podcast. Don't forget, you can help to support our work and listen to extra exclusive content, including recordings of lectures, folklore from our archives and more, on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.